Let me, uh, let me start off by kind of uh, telling you about this uh, documentary that I heard about um, that came on years ago, and it was, it was, it was covering D-Day. And what made this documentary interesting is it was kind of filled with all these interviews of, uh, of soldiers and their experiences storming the, the banks of Normandy. And at one point, what they did is they interviewed these people back to back who had different perspectives. And so one is they interviewed um, a guy in the infantry who was, who was literally storming the banks. He was running the beaches, trying to push back the German army, Right. And as they interviewed him, he said this. He said, as I was coming up the beach, I remember looking around and I recalled the events and and I just saw people being mowed down left and right by the German gunfire. And and he said, and I thought to myself, there is no way we're going to win. But then right after that, they interviewed this, this American pilot who was watching the same events but was flying overhead and, and, and bombing for cover. And he said this. He said, as I watched the events on the beach and I saw line after line after line of American troops keep coming and coming and coming, he said, I, I started realizing there's no way we're going to lose. And see, think about that. Both the men saw the same events, but they had a completely different perspective. Why? Because the man on the ground, all he could see was what was in front of him. That was his whole picture of truth. But the man up in the air, he saw the same events, but he also saw the big picture. And he saw that what that man was seeing on the beach wasn't the whole story. And so he had a different perspective. And it changed everything. And we're walking through the book of Revelation and we're seeing how it's written to these Christians in the first century who are confused, who are scared who are doubting because at the least they're very uncomfortable. At the most they're being killed and thrown into prison because they're following this dead and resurrected Jesus. And Revelation keeps saying things are not as they seem. There is more than is, there's more going on than you can simply ascertain by the unaided senses of touch, hear, and sight. And so in Revelation 4, what the Lord Jesus is going to do He's going to come to John, he's going to come to us, and he's going to say, I know you're confused. I know you doubt. I know you're in pain. But I want you to see something. I want you to see the full picture of what actually is going on so that your vision isn't hindered, so that you have the full perspective. Because Jesus is going to say this, the reason that you and I are so afraid, the reason that we're so insecure and life seems so unstable is because we're looking at a partial truth as if, as if it's everything. And Jesus is going to say, I want you to see this. Look at this. So let me pray. Father, would you, um, yeah, would you help us to see what John saw? We admit uh, that we are weak. Uh, we are helpless. We admit we're sinful. And so you have to give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear. Would you do that? Would you enable us to be enthralled by the Lord of this universe that sits on the throne and rules and reigns in power, but also rules and reigns in tremendous grace. That would be worth showing up for. Would you do that in Jesus' name? Amen. All right, Revelation 4, starting in verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. 
At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne and each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of, full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. Okay, our two headings that we're going to look at is the things that that Jesus commands John to look at. We're going to look at the throne room, and then we're going to look at the activity going on in the throne room. First, look at the throne room, verse 1 through 6a. What John sees and shows us, it's not only strange, it is, but it's astounding. You've got to keep this in mind. John is not leaving reality, right? When he's in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit presses you into reality itself. So he's not going into some trance that disconnects him from reality and he's going up there somewhere. No, he, he's, been, he's been being invited into the full picture. He's saying, I want you to see reality itself. And so John sees this open door. And that door is an invitation into the spiritual world. Right? And we're saying the spiritual world, heaven, is not this thing that's way up there disconnected. It's the sphere of reality. It's what's at work behind this world that shapes the world that we can see. It's right here. We just can't see it. It's actually more real in some ways than what we see because it's the moving force behind it. And so John walks through this door into the spiritual realm. And the first thing that John sees, he says, I want you to see this, is a throne. And the throne is occupied. There's somebody on it. And this becomes the dominant image of the whole book of Revelation. A throne with someone on it. Now think about this. Why would the first thing that John sees when he peers into the reality behind this reality, why would he see a throne that's occupied? Because if you look at this world simply with your unaided eyes and and ears and sense of touch, You tell me, does it appear that anybody's on the throne? A lot of times it doesn't, right? I mean, Revelation 1, right? For the first hearers of this, Christians are being killed left and right. The apostles have almost all been martyred. The church seems to be crumbling because they follow Jesus. What seems to be on the throne is is nothing. Or Or at the most, the Roman Empire. That seems to be what ruling the day. I think if I were John, I would conclude that the throne of this universe is absent. Or, I mean, 
Even look at today, right? Today is September 11th, which means 13 years ago. But I thought of this. Some of you were like five years old, which is crazy. But 13 years ago, on this day, planes were flying into the Twin Towers in Manhattan. It is the most chaotic and fearful day I've, like, I've ever witnessed. It was crazy. You looked around that day in shock. And the feeling was this. What is going on? And people were verbalizing it. They were saying, where is God in all this? It seemed like the throne is unoccupied. It seems like chaos is ruling the world. And Jesus says, look, I want you to see something. Things are not as they seem. There's a throne. And someone is on it. And he opens the door and he peels back the curtain and shows you this throne room that is alive. And seated on the throne is the king of kings. And he's sitting in complete control, completely calm. He's not worried. He's not frantic. He's not shaken. He's running, dictating, and shaping everything. Everything. And I know that might cause some some intellectual problems, but that's okay. That's who he is. And so first, think about this. Like, I know we just kind of, we push the gigantic big events, right? Like people being martyred September 11th. But this applies to the garden variety stuff that, like, we go through on our, on our every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, right? Like, when your grandparents are getting sick and they're starting to forget who you are, when you're personally struggling to process, like, your loneliness at college, or you're kind of overwhelmed with the sin that's coming out of you and you're saying, I don't understand how this can be happening, or the, or the breakup still haunts you, or you're still in pain because your dad left you and he shouldn't have, Look what John is saying. The first thing that you need to see is not some kind of plan to cope with your emotions, though that's fine. It's not even some better strategies of discipline of how to kind of get your life together. The first thing you need to know is that there's a throne and it's occupied. That whatever's going on in your life, in your sphere, in this world, you need to see it's actually because God's on the throne, not because he's absent. And it's not that what you see with your physical eyes isn't true. Of course it is. It's just not the whole picture. But if we start saying that what I see is the whole truth, and it's only the partial truth, then we're distorted. And so Jesus wants us to see the throne. But then what does he see? He begins describing the person sitting on the throne. Right? How do you describe the Lord of this universe? He just starts grabbing these images. And he says he has the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And there was a rainbow that was going all out from his throne that was like emerald green. Jasper, right, it tends to be kind of, kind of translucent. It, 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 uh, light kind of flows through it. It's the color of kind of yellow and green. Carnelian is this reddish stone. And there's this brilliant rainbow that seems to be covering everything. It is this incredible picture of unobstructed beauty. That's what he sees. It captivates him. So, right, if you were to ask John, wait, 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 what did the Lord look like? John would say, yeah, I don't know. It was like Jasper and Cornet. It was astoundingly beautiful. Because the point is not to describe what Jesus looked, I mean, but what the Lord looked like so you can draw it. The point is for this reality to capture imagination and actually move you and change you. So why does John press the Lord's beauty on us? I think this is key. 
Because think about this. When something is beautiful, the value and the worth is inherent in the object. Not because it does something for you. It just is worthy. It just is beautiful. Tim Keller talks about this. How in one of, it's in one of his books. He talks about how he used to view classical music, like Bach and Beethoven, right? He said, he said at first, the only reason they listened to Bach and Beethoven was because he was in this music appreciation class in college, and that's what was going to get him through college, right? He, he had to listen to this music to get a good grade so he could get a job and make money. And so music was just kind of this, this means to an end. But then he said something happened. As he started getting older... He starts seeing the inherent beauty in Bach and, in Bach and Beethoven. He said a funny thing happened. It, music used to be the thing that would ensure I'd get a job and get money. Now I started spending money so that I could purchase music from Bach and Beethoven. Why? Because music was no longer a means to an end. It was captivatingly beautiful. It in and of itself was valuable just for what it is. That's what John is pushing on us. You see, one of the indications that you are actually dealing with reality itself and that you've met the real God is that you no longer see him as as useful. He's not just useful, he's beautiful. That the worth of who he is is not dependent on what he gives you. It's just what he is. He's astoundingly beautiful. And see... This is why it's so applicable to our struggles. Because a lot of us, when things get tough, when life isn't turning out how we thought it should in college, the temptation is to say, what's the use of following Jesus? Like, why follow Jesus if he's not going to give me a boyfriend? Or if he's not going to immediately take my sin away? Or if he's not going to give me the life that I want? And at that point, when we turn our back on, on Jesus because he doesn't give me the things that I want, we've shown our hand, haven't we? We said he's not intrinsically worthy. We've said he's only worthy if he gives me what I find to be supremely worthy, which is this stuff. And he's just useful. And, and John is pressing in that, no, he is beauty itself. He just is worthy. Will you see it? And then John sees these flashes of lightning and peals of thunder coming from the throne. And really, the, right, the first hearers would have immediately thought of of when God shows up on Mount Sinai and peals of thunder and, 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 and lightning start coming out of the mountain. It's this awesome display of power. Then you see the seven torches, right, and the seven spirits of God, which we keep saying the seven is the number of completion. This is the Holy Spirit who's there. But here comes my favorite part. I love this. What John sees next is the sea. And it is so calm it looks like glass, like crystal. Now, The sea in the Bible, and actually in their culture, both, it's always, it's always, it's a metaphor for chaos, for the unknown. Right? If you see in Genesis 1, when when God first creates, it says that the earth is is void and, and dark. It's chaotic. And the Spirit starts hovering over the waters. Starts bringing stability out of chaos. Right? And actually, when we get to Revelation 13, you'll see the beast... The beast that, that, that we'll talk about that wants to destroy every, all of Jesus' people, wants to destroy everything good, it comes out of the sea. Right? And, and in the Gospel of John and Jesus' perfect, uh, actually the Gospel of Mark, and Jesus' earthly life, when he calms the sea, do you remember this by saying, peace be still? 
the disciples flip out. Because he just took the place of chaos and unknown and fear and calmed it. And they said, who is this? And so what you, what you start realizing is that, is that though this is the sign of chaos and unknown, when it touches the throne room of God, it goes completely calm. It's not just calm. It's like a crystal glass. It's not moving at all. There's not a hint of instability before the throne room of God. Don't you see what John's saying? He's saying, I want to show you something. There is no waves of tension where God is. You might feel like your life is chaotic. But if you look at it from where the Lord is, it's not. It's as calm and as crystal. And this makes me think about this other kind of earthly moment in Jesus' life where the disciples are in a boat and they're, they're either rowing or sailing, I can't remember, across the Sea of Galilee. They're not sure where Jesus is. And then Jesus uh, just starts walking across the sea to them, which, let's be honest, I think we all would have freaked out at that moment. right? And, and they are kind of freaking out. And Jesus says, you know, fear not, it's me. And then Peter, Peter decides that he wants to walk out to Jesus. And he does. And he's looking at Jesus and he's walking on the water. And then what happens is he starts seeing the waves. And as his focus moves from Jesus to the waves, he begins to sink. Now I want you to think about what happened. The waves were always there. But what happened was this. That at first the waves were in the background and Jesus was in the foreground. And so he was looking at the waves. He was looking at the darkness, at the chaos through Jesus. But then at some point it flipped and the waves came into the foreground and Jesus remained in the background and he started looking at Jesus through the chaos, through the waves, and he went down. And see, Jesus is saying, let me show you reality, right? I know it seems chaotic in this world. I know it seems chaotic in your life. And many times it seems like evil is winning. But you've got to keep what's in the foreground the right thing, which is the throne room of God. Quit judging and seeing God through your circumstances and start seeing your circumstances through the reality of who God is. It doesn't change the circumstances, but it changes how you see them. Right? John is saying, look at this. I know, I know. Some of you are being driven absolutely crazy because your future is so unknown. It seems so chaotic. Because you still don't know your plans and you're graduating in like eight months. And you think real peace, you think real stability will, will come if I finally figure out exactly what I'm going to do with my life. And I know my plans are sure. And the throne room is saying, no. Real peace, real stability will come if you see the full picture. Start with the throne room. Start with who the Lord is. And see... That your, that your future is not chaotic before him. He's not wringing his hands right now wondering where you're going to be. It's utterly calm. It's utterly at peace. And some of you have watched your life unravel while in college, and you hope people after college never discover some of the things that you did. Right? But you think, yes, it's been crazy. And my life feels unstable, but real stability is going to come when I finally get out of here and I get more disciplined and I start making better choices. And the throne room is saying, no, no. The way to heal the chaos of your sin, 
And the destruction in your life is to bring it to the throne room. That's where it gets healed. That's where you'll see that the only person surprised by your sin is you. Not Jesus. And you'll see that he'll even take your failures, your sin, your shame, and it continues to fit, here you go, into his plan for your life. Even your sin isn't getting you on plan B. It's working out his plan. And he's making a beautiful story. This is what Jesus is putting before us tonight. That if you look at your life in this world simply with unaided senses, it's going to terrify you. Because it's a sad, messed up world. And our hearts are really broken. But he's saying that's only part of the picture. If you see that as the whole picture, you'll end in despair. But he's saying, I want you to see your life, the chaos, your sin, the death, and the... I want you to see that next to the occupied throne. That's how I want you to start viewing it. And it's a sea like glass. And so first, Jesus invites us to look at the throne room. And he just wants, not not so you can kind of draw this picture, but so you feel two primary things. You feel beauty and you feel stability. The throne room is the place of captivating beauty and stability and peace. That's what it wants you to feel. And look, if you're here tonight and you're trying to figure out Christianity, man, we love that you're here. What I'd ask you to consider, or even if you're just bored with Jesus, like consider this. Don't you wish what was described was true? Right? Don't you recognize that in your hearts you long for a place? Like you long for a place where beauty is no longer fleeting. You long for a place where we aren't afraid anymore. And there really is security. What if the reason that you long for that is because it's there? It's true. And then he wants us to see the activity around the throne room, right? There are these 24 elders that are sitting on the, throne, on, the, on the 24 thrones. And then you have these four living creatures that are strange. Very quickly. Okay, there's, and there's people that disagree with me. You need to know that. There's a lot of different interpretations. But I believe, if you, if you let Scripture interpret Scripture, the 24 elders stand for the people of God, the Christians. All of them. Right? Because... 24, 12, the 12 tribes of Israel, the way that you would sum up and represent the people of God in the Old Testament before Jesus. And then when Jesus shows up, what does he do? He commissions 12 apostles to be the representatives of the, of the people of God after his coming. And so 12 plus 12, 24, what you see is the full people of God on the thrones. This is what Carew read. The apostle Paul says believers have been raised Right now, not will be raised sometime, but but presently you are seated in the heavenly places with Jesus. You're in that reality. And what about these strange creatures? What are they? They have six wings, eyes all around, face of a lion, face of an ox, face of an eagle, face of a man. Again, there's different opinion here. What I think if you use scripture, interpret scripture, is you start realizing it's the number of four, both culturally and biblically. It's the number for creation. Right? The four ends of the earth... The four winds. And so John is looking into reality itself. And he, said, and he sees not just all the people of God, but he sees the four creatures which encapsulate all of the animate creation. And they're all around the throne. 
All the people of God, everything that God has created is around the throne. And what are they doing? They're screaming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they cast down their crowns. Everything they've ever achieved or possessed, it just goes at his feet. Because they are worshiping. They are worshiping. Why are they worshiping? Because he is beauty. Because he is power. He is peace. He's reality itself. And what you'll begin to find is this. The question is never, do you worship? Right? If, if we're seeing into reality itself and all of creation and all the people of God are worshiping, what you realize is that worship is at the heart of this universe. It's never a question of, will you worship? It's, what do you worship? All of your actions, all of your thoughts, they are dictated by this. What's on the throne of your life? What do you worship? And you know what you worship? Whatever you find captivatingly beautiful. And whatever you look at and say, this has the power to bring me stability and security. That's what you worship. That's what you give your life to. That's what dominates your thoughts. That's what you're convinced will bring stability and happiness. Here's the principle. You're worshiping something. It's the reason for your actions and your thoughts. What is it? Some some of you, you worship sex. You do. Let's take it. It's a very, very good thing. It's created by God. It's so good, so it's powerful. It's a gift of God for marriage. But what happens when it gets enthroned in your life? What happens? Haven't you realized how much power it has over you? That it doesn't just go away when you're lonely? When things feel unstable, where do you go to feel stability? You go to pornography. You go to sex because it makes you feel better for a little bit. Most of you, you would never want people to know how much seeing something sexually attractive actually moves you. It's something in your heart. It's not just a behavior problem. There's worship going on. You're saying, I have to have this. This is captivatingly beautiful. It makes me feel secure. And by the way, the other side is true as well. Some have worshipped sex in the church so much so that they've said this. If you save yourself from marriage, then then sex will be so good it will endlessly delight you. And if you've somehow had sex before marriage, it's forever ruined. See, that's that's treating sex like the end-all, be-all as well. That's a lie. It was never meant to make sense of your life. It was never meant to endlessly captivate you. There's no peace or stability found there. What about the approval of others or a good reputation? Look, a good name is excellent. The Bible approves you wanting a good name. But if you enthrone it, if it's the thing that captivates your heart and becomes the thing you look for for peace and security, man, then you'll devote your time your energy, your thoughts, and and money to ensure that I'm always on good terms with the people I need to be on good terms with. And what happens when you disappoint somebody? Your life becomes unstable. You're afraid. And the peace is always fleeting. Or here's the big one, I think. I think some people on campus, I think you've gotten really good at this. You've perfected the art of looking as if you don't worship anything. You're good at it. 
You're coolly unaffected by anything and everything. Every party that you go to is just kind of take or leave it. Every relationship I can take or leave. Every class that I, that I take, I don't have to take that seriously because I take, I'm, I'm coolly unaffected by everything. Do you know why that is? Because the object of your worship is your own control. And what really fascinates you and what really makes you feel secure and at peace is that you're in control. And so you remain detached from everything because that makes me feel okay. By the way, this is why some of us men don't know how to cry. Because crying makes you feel out of control. And you'd rather remain detached. But see, of all, with all the bravado and, and all the sarcasm and all the casual self-reliance, it's just an act of worship. It's a worship of your own control. And beneath it all, I'm telling you, you're very afraid. I know you are. It's okay. But so much of what goes around on this campus is not because you're cool and stable. It's because you're desperately insecure and afraid. And you know that. You're worshiping what you can't hold and can't sustain you. And Revelation 4 is saying, if you look to anything but the Lord on the throne for stability, for peace, to stop your fears and to captivate you with beauty, you're skewed. It's not that those things aren't real. Yes, they're real. But it's that you're looking at the partial picture. Those things have beauty and power simply because the Lord created simply because they are aspects of his creation and he upholds them. The reason that we are riddled with insecurity and fear is because the object of our worship is something besides the one who is on the throne. That's the reason. He created all things. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. How do I know if I'm seeing the whole picture? It's if the object of your worship is the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That's the whole picture. And we're out of time, so I'll just ask you to consider this. I'm stealing this from from Brian Hayden. If this really is the full picture of reality, if the Lord is this holy and he creates everything and he upholds this universe and the reason that you're here and the reason that your heart is continuing to beat is because he's doing it, that means if you're trying to figure out Christianity, like keep coming, but I'm going to press this on to you. At the end of the day, if this is what reality is, your biggest concern is not your loneliness, though I'm not belittling that. It's not your scars. It's not your worries. Your greatest concern would be to stand before the throne of this God unprepared. That's what's pressing in here. And then the last thing is this. I heard this story the other day. I heard the story about, um, about a guy who... Uh, who planned out his kind of big engagement to happen in Memphis on top of the Peabody. Any of my Memphis people here? Right. Um, Peabody, top of the roof of the Peabody Hotel, great place to get engaged. And, you know, so he made these big plans. He's so excited. And he takes her out on this date, and he takes her up on the reef. And there's actually, you know, people walking around the reef, as you'd expect. And, and, and he gets on his knees, and he asks her. And when she says yes, he just kind of, like, something comes over him. He just lets out this, like, war cry that just goes, Yeah! <laughs> Right, and she's like, shh, like people are looking, and and and, and he just says, "What do you mean, shh?" He's like, "Yeah." <laughs> now, like, think about this, okay? Like, what happened in that moment? This girl wanted him. She wanted to spend the rest of her life with him, and it so captivated him that he just like burst into yelling. 
It just was too good to be true. That's worship. How does John get into the throne room? This is what I want you to hear. He's invited by the Son of Man, by Jesus. That's the trumpet who's calling to him. Jesus says, come up here. I want you to see this. And Jesus is not just saying this to John. The rest of the Bible tells us this. He's saying it to sinners. Jesus says this to people who are, who are academically deceitful, who are addicted to things that you don't want people to know about, to self-righteous people, to people who look at pornography. Jesus is inviting you to come up to the throne room. And you say, I can't come. I don't belong there. If I come in there, my dirtiness, my sin will ruin the purity of that place. My unrest will disturb the peace of that place. But Jesus is saying, yeah, you're right. You can't enter the throne room on your own merits. But you know what? You belong in this place. Because I want you here. I want you here. You can't come on your own merits. But if you come in my merits, in my righteousness, in my forgiveness, you belong here. Man. Like, wouldn't that be captivatingly beautiful? Wouldn't that bring some stability? Shouldn't that make us like go, yeah. He's inviting you tonight. Not up somewhere distant. It's here. It's pressing in on you. Come see the full story. It's better than you think. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Revelation 4. In many ways, um, it sounds too good to be true. How could the holy and beautiful, and pure, and almighty God invite us into his presence. We know we're dirty. We know we're unstable. And so, Lord, would you take that reality, and would you press it in so that we look to come into the throne, not by our own merits, not by our goodness, not by by disciplining ourselves more, but we trust that Jesus has invited us, and we look to Jesus' life and Jesus' death to bring us into the throne room of God. Would you stabilize us tonight? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.